Hi everyone and welcome back to the Power of the Crowd podcast. We are so excited to introduce to you our second guest on the show, Mimi Noyen. Mimi Noyen is an innovation star. She works on innovation projects that are so cutting edge and out of the ordinary that even explaining them is already making me want to start innovating right now. Mimi's unique position of being an innovation lecturer at Central St. Martins, one of the most renowned art schools in the world, inspires her to bring together groups of artists, curators, and thinkers to explore exciting topics such as NFTs, blockchain, and the future of hybrid working. Mimi is an engineer and is an inspirational female leader in innovation, a field that is still overwhelmingly dominated by men. We are featuring some of Mimi's articles in the podcast episode description. There, you can check out her fascinating article in Time magazine about the future of remote working and other cool projects she's worked on recently. This week, we're highlighting female voices on the Power of the Crowd podcast. And this is why we are so excited and humbled to have Mimi on our program today. Tag hashtag the power of the crowd and make sure to get in touch with us on Instagram at Global Crowd to share your thoughts on today's conversation and also any ideas you want us to explore with you. In this episode, Mimi and I will be talking about the future of NFTs, how blockchain empowers the people, the power of serendipity, reaching out to people, sharing ideas, the power of curating creative projects and being a woman in the innovation space and so much more. Tune in to learn about the power of innovation to make a change in this world. Welcome. Thank you so much for your time. How are you doing today? Hi, Esther. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm very well, very excited for a lot of uh, things that are hopefully going to uh, unfold over the next months. Uh, and uh, also looking forward to finally entering the right up place in my PhD. So, um, so that will give me uh, a lot of kick to... Uh, to publish more of the research that I've been cooking over the last two years and, and be able to speak about the research uh, that has been uh, happening in the background uh, of Imperial College. That's very nice to hear. And I think um, having done some research about what you do, um, I thought the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what is one of the craziest projects that you've worked on in the past years or an experience that you think, you know, really sticks out in, in the times you've been working on innovation? So for, for sure, and I think it happens um, throughout a lot of conversations over the last months, it's the, the topic of NFT. and. I'm just very lucky to be in a position of representing an art institution, uh, an academic art institution, uh, which gives me a platform to, to be able to uh, start conversations with a lot of people in the space. And what always surprises me, like uh, how different and uh, how rich can the conversations be as long as we're bringing people from different backgrounds, especially like not just artists, but as you mentioned, curators, people from like auction houses, uh, and especially people from uh, tech companies. So bringing people from tech companies on Monday, so a few days ago, we just had Kathleen Brightman, so the co-founder and CEO of Tezos, one of the main 
um, blockchain protocols um, and quite growing massively right now in the NFT space, coming to speak to our students at CSM. Uh, that combined with uh, Lucy, who works for Vogue in Business, so another different angle, different perspective. I'm actually a chairman of the Metaverse Group, who is quite, he, he used to be an investment banker, actually. Mm. And he uh, came from the finance background, but actually he's, uh, he's leading now the Tokens.com company, who are behind the first Metaverse Fashion Week in the Central Land. And mm. uh, yeah, and he's talking about fashion with us. So it's, it's just very interesting to see all of the different angles linking together, all of the different worlds, actually the worlds that I'm coming from. So finance, uh, financial services, I used to work in, in fintech before, uh, tech, uh, which is basically my PhD from Faculty of Engineering at Imperial, and arts, uh, and that's the CSM um, background of actually my work right now. So bringing art, tech, and finance together and, and finding this, this mix, uh, the NFTs, is the most exciting for me because... For so many years, I couldn't combine these things together. Mm-hmm. I was jumping between all of these art, uh, art, finance, tech institutions, and people were saying that I'm mad and like, why are you quitting <laughs> your job at BCG? Why are you quitting your job at FinTech to study art? Um, doesn't make sense. And why are you doing now suddenly PhD uh, in engineering? And, and last year was the moment I was like, well, this is the intersection of these three things. They're coming together. Uh, they're going to revolutionize a lot of different industries, so not only memes, digital art, uh, generative art, but actually also traditional art uh, and fashion and, you know, who knows, and music industry. So there are lots of industries and applications that will be affected by this basic mechanism and and technology. Um, And, yeah, I'm just very excited to see how it will be adopted from an innovation point of view. So, you know, if you follow the innovation diffusion curve, like we are at the very beginning right now mm. with a lot of resistance and to see when it will come to this uh, later stages. I mean, it will take years, but it's just exciting to see the space growing and starting to getting more and more credibility. Mm. I think that's the most important for me. Yes. And I think that kind of also is something that a lot of people are wondering, how do you actually get into the innovation space, like professionally? And you've mentioned that you've switched from a couple of different professional backgrounds. So is there maybe a way you can give us a bit more insight into actually, when did you make that decision? Okay, I'm going into innovation. And how did you come to realize that innovation is the space where you can bring in, you know, art, finance, tech all together? Yes, I think... I started very traditionally, uh, studying statistics, econometrics, or quantitative methods uh, in business, and I went to consulting. So kind of classic career from the economic school. Uh, and we were implementing tech in the financial system, so I was in Accenture at that time, which was quite innovative in terms of like bringing all this new tech uh, to the big banks and you know automating these systems. But somehow, um, I don't know, I, I didn't feel that it's, it's as innovative. Now. So it is optimizing things. It is changing uh, operationally a lot of processes and increasing efficiency uh, and performance uh, within an organization. But in terms of changing really behavior or making any proper transformative change from a you know, societal point of view, um, didn't seem much to me. 
mm-hmm. apart from you know just having people fired. Uh, and I found this course at Central Saint Martin. Oh, of course, my dream was always to study at Central Saint Martin. So um, I applied and I just moved to London to quit everything. And this was the moment when you know finding myself in London and seeing um, learning a that innovation is about change, uh, delivering the change. So it's also just not about ideas, being creative and coming up with crazy ideas, but actually being able to uh, deliver on that and implement the idea that we had uh, in order to bring change. That's kind of like the crucial thing to me. So like, I mean, you know, you can design a nicer red chair, but the innovation is you manage to change the way people sit. And that's kind of like uh, a transformation that I was always looking for. And uh, I got lucky because I was in London. So we had at that time kind of like a big boom of fintechs. Mm-hmm. So again, something new on the market in terms of tech and financial services and the startup uh, landscape. And mm-hmm. that was so exciting because there was like companies spread out across Shoreditch and Soho that have, you know, this 20 people, 30 people, super talented people that are passionate about really making a change in terms of, for example, very small things, um, loans from banks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you watch this movie, The Founder, is it The Founder? I wonder about McDonald's. Mm-hmm. You know, the guy is like walking from banks to banks asking for a loan and it takes him like months to get it approved. Mm-hmm. So normally if you ask for a loan uh, as, a, as a company, as an SME in the bank, it also takes like three months. Mm. And the company that I applied to was trying to solve that in one day through, of course, automation. And mm. uh, they didn't use the word AI, basically algorithms and ML to mm-hmm. speed up the credit check. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that was quite a big innovation in the financial services. So just, you know, making life easier for SMEs uh, and, and really disrupting the bank, one of the bank services. Uh, and, then, and I got into that organization. It was just great to observe how a company can grow in such a short period of time from 30 to 150 people uh, going for all this uh, investment rounds. And, and that was that was like an amazing journey for me to, to share, mm-hmm. uh, you know, while, while studying here in London at CSM. Uh, and yeah, so to enter innovation, I think uh, it's not that easy in terms of like, I don't think there is a point where you just, just study innovation mm-hmm. because... It's always better to focus on one vertical, one domain that you can be an expert of because without being expert, really seeing the past, it's really quite hard to to then being able to see what can you fix. So you have to immerse yourself in the traditional part as well. So, you know, one of mm-hmm. my favorite examples uh, in that company, so it was called Iwoka. Uh, they later on had a new product called Iwoka Pay, and the, the person who was leading that the development of the product, she actually came from the background of micropayments in Africa. And it's it's super impressive. So she understands payment systems and mm. financial services very, very well. Mm. And then based on that, building on top of all this expertise and knowledge, she is able to think, okay, this is wrong. We need to fix this. Let's change this. And then she became a product person to change it. And she is actually doing now uh, you know basically what she has done is innovate in the space um so i think just to enter innovation it's choose the thing that you're most passionate about doesn't matter what it can be financial services can be insurance can be i don't know recruitment can mm-hmm. be any space uh and understand it very well and then try to think 
how can we really improve our lives? And I think that's at the end of the day, it's just about um, designing something better, something that will serve us better. And that's the innovation. Mm. Yes. And that's maybe also something interesting to hear what you think are the most disruptive and, and, and as you say, impactful innovations in this time in terms of also design and design thinking and how you can really see, for example, NFTs changing or blockchain changing the way society works, if you want to um, tell us a bit more about that. I mean, there is a lot, massive uh, criticism to, of course, the whole space right now, blockchain uh, and NFTs. And I think it's because, I mean, the same with like every innovation, like Even Apple, when um, iPhone when it came out, there was a massive resistance. I remember for my for myself. Uh, so I think mm. we need to get through all the phase when there is some trash happening around and scams. So yesterday we had a session at Imperial where you know someone asked about blockchain and one of the students said it's a Ponzi scheme. And it, it you know people are completely eligible to say that because of all the scams that are happening right now. And, mm. you know, if you go on Twitter and then you put hashtag NFTs, all you can see are fun projects that sometimes you're not sure, like, is that, was it made for fun or is it basically another tool, mm. um, tax avoidance tool, because mm. people make so much money in crypto and they just, you know, don't want to pay that out and they have to like, put this money somewhere. Uh, but if you look, At the technology, at the underlying technology, I think there is a lot of value that uh, different industries can and are already exploring. So in terms of financial services, there is no doubt, uh, you know, of course, not thinking about this as an investment asset, but just as a technology, you know, in terms of payments, mm -hmm. it, can, uh, it can speed up the payments and uh, as a result, just bring down the cost of mm -hmm. cross-border payments, for example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that I thought about it, for example, recently reading just an article because we are speaking now in the midst of the war, uh, the Ukrainian-Russian war, um, and everyone is talking about the SWIFT, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's take putting down the SWIFT, like, let's take the SWIFT away from him. Mm -hmm. And then I read this article about the whole history of SWIFT had been set up by 150 countries. It's about this communication between the banks of um, different countries and then how the transactions are being done. And of course, at the end, it's like, you know, the SWIFT transaction takes a few hours. So I think, you know, this is the first thing in my head, like if blockchain would be adapted, then the cross-border transactions or like all the payments, like that, we won't be even speaking about SWIFT and it would happen instantly. Mm. So mm. these are the things that uh, I am excited about i think this technology will revolutionize a lot of things that we won't even notice it will just happen behind our back for example payment transactions and the same with nfts like the the fact that we have to keep provenance of ownership like that should be like done in the background automatically so i'm just waiting for that when uh you know eventually we all will be able to purchase and collect good art <laughs> That's kind of like my dream. Uh, and yeah, NFT will just be a technology, a mechanism behind it mm. that will serve us uh, as, a, as a medium to, to purchase the asset and, and potentially possibly sell it if we want to. But yeah, again, that's something that, um, you know, I'm not treating digital art as something to flip, mm. but I'm more trying to see this as an opportunity to kind of grow a new generation of collectors mm. a new, 
and also a new wave of artists. Hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll see more coming from art universities rather than uh, gamers and coders. Yeah, and I think it's interesting how you mentioned also the Ukraine example and how, from my perspective, crypto and NFTs both give people the power actually to do more. So, for example, Ukraine is accepting crypto donations or, you know, yeah, people... The Ukraine like, DAO is great, yeah. They yeah. already got 3 million from Ethereum, something like that. Yeah, and it's like, it's it's speeding up. It's really giving people um, the power to... Um, to maybe have more of a say in the international in the international just community and with nfts i feel like it's similar as well just from a personal perspective i think we both have examples of people that would have never gotten into art collection right because it's such a yeah. privilege actually to have art on your walls first you have to need the money and the space for it but with nfts you have people getting interested in art which which i think is beautiful and I was reading the article and the project that you've worked on how to build a better NFT ecosystem and we'll have all the links also in the mm -hmm. Spotify and Apple Music uh, link to the episode and I wanted to ask you uh, to tell us a bit more about what you've already spoken about bringing different people together so you've curated this group of, of thinkers right to to talk about NFTs and what's kind of your your take on um What were the different perspectives? Like, what is, you know, what is coming out of all these different fields involved in NFTs? Yeah, so we had, I mean, I really like that panel, actually, because it was, like, so intense. It was so many people. I actually just invited so many people. And then, <laughs> um, we didn't even, like, I was, like, joking that I don't have enough chairs for them. So, luckily, some of them kind of called in. So, uh, Robert Alice, um, one of the, he actually is an artist who sold the first NFT on Christie's mm -hmm. uh, by any major auction houses. And um, he was talking about constitutional uh, doubter and then his work that was generated by GTP3, OpenAI. So it's kind of like a world that is co-created by AI and the audience. So this is, again, like a massive thing that is coming right now, like the whole discussion about like who is the creator of mm -hmm. art? Like, is it really a machine? Or is it the author? Or is it now the users, the, the audience? Um, so it's, it's like a whole new wave of art, actually, mm -hmm. um, that is being created through the technology. Because without these DAOs or, or this technology, people wouldn't be able to put the input uh, to the algorithm and then that mm -hmm. generates things. So that, that was quite interesting for him to share. Uh, we have Simon Denny, who was the artist that was involved in the space like since 2016 even so it was just mm. great to see like you know it was just not just artists that are jumping mm. on the, on the bandwagon but like people who are very interested in the space like since even the whole ico boom mm. and and he he already did loads of projects now working with teasers as well um discussing back the the dot com his new project with the dot com um crash as well um mm -hmm. so yeah so it's, it's just very interesting to see like what's happening in this in the art space uh from the perspective of the artist itself and then we had uh sofa piece mm -hmm. uh who uh discussed about the role of art curation and that was one of the questions that was the most interesting to me like you know if nfts are about the direct connection between the collector and the artist and what's what's the point of having galleries anymore, curators, mm. CSM, all of these institutions, if you know. Now I can just go on Twitter and buy someone's art. Mm. Um, and yeah, so she, so she uh, Karina made a very great point about like, so it's even now more important to have that guidance and that curational role 
because yeah, we kind of lost as, as collectors. Like we just really don't know what to buy. So it could be like you can be led by your taste, but at the end of the day, you do need um, maybe not the middleman just to just be the middleman of the transaction itself, because this is not being solved by the technology, but just a curator or someone who can help you understand anything behind the art. Mm. And I think that kind of will slightly change the role of, uh, of these institutions uh, in the art space. Um, we had Anka Kultis as well, so she's a gallery owner, uh, and then she gave a lot of examples of how she dealt, like how she values mm. uh, some of the digital art, like she gave like a funny story about counting YouTube views, mm. and you know, like, is there a point of buying a video that is already on YouTube? And that kind mm. of like, goes back to the point of NFTs, like is there a point of buying something that everyone can download? And mm. I think she gave this great example that, yeah, sure, like it's on YouTube, but you still as a collector want to be that I'm the owner of the original piece. Mm. Uh, and I think this example actually could be better portrayed in terms of music, right? Like we mm. all are listening to songs on radio and Spotify, but you're not the owner of the song. Mm. Uh, just the fact that you can own it, I think uh, people are paying money uh, for that what we can see and of course we had uh art from, from Tiso, so a completely different angle different point of view um he's the author of the white paper so he explained basically uh more the tech part of it so like mm. what's the difference between, between proof of stake proof of uh, work mm. uh he answered the biggest question you know like why this is so environmentally not friendly and then he explained that it is actually if you use proof of stake and then what's the difference between that? Uh, and of course, we had um, Alex from Flash Art, so he's kind of like coming from the background of the art historian mm. and speaking more about the art aspect. So it, it was a very dense conversation, I think. So then now I'm just trying to summar, summarize up everything. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do recommend having a, a game with the article. So it, it's shorter than watching a video. But I think why it's so important to bring this, this perspective is because we are already quite biased by what we are reading right now. I mean, my Twitter is just so curated mm. and the algorithm is now think that I am like a meme lover and I'm just keeping, keep seeing the same things on my Twitter and the same about news. Like we're reading, I don't know, Guardian. It's, it's curated by the Guardian editors for us. And it's really hard to then get out of your bubble. Mm. And that happened to me when um, there was this elections recently in, in the UK and, you know, when I was on, when I was reading Guardian and on Twitter, I literally thought that Jeremy Corbyn would win. I was like 100%, mm. like every tweet on my feed is about Jeremy Corbyn. Like, of course he's going to win. But then I forgot that my feed has been completely edited by Twitter. Mm. And then when you see the results, you're like, where are these other people? Like, what happened to this, 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 my bubble? Like, there is, there are some people really outside London. <laughs> and, um, and that kind of like, shocked me like how much we are actually manipulated by the sources of news that we are consuming mm -hmm. and just by forcing this, this this random group of people to come to CSM to speak to our students and yeah I'm, I was just so happy for example like you know last time Andrew just as an investment banker just came and, and spoke to the students it gives you a different perspective and mm -hmm. understanding like sometimes you know the fact that you're reading that uh, blockchain it's consuming more energy than Switzerland and it's, it's you know, the devil and all the wars on this planet is about blockchain, is a Ponzi scheme. That's not true because if you don't really understand the space and the tech behind it and that there are other consensus mechanisms like 
proof of uh, stake. There's another new one, proof of agreement. Uh, it's one in 10 million of the energy consumption. So, yeah, it's like, I don't know, this is a joke sense, like, check your facts, but like from other sources sometimes, because mm. it does help. No, that's interesting that you talk about this because my research is all about algorithms and how, you know, they are shaping our reality. But at the same time, you were saying something about algorithms and AI creating art and then who is actually the, the creator of that art. But I still really believe in the argument that at this point, AI algorithms are still, ML, all of it is still created by people. So in the end, it is the people's responsibility that create these algorithms to actually make sure, you know, that they don't lead us down a rabbit hole where we can't get out anymore. Um, and so I think that I am a bit skeptical about also giving the rights of a painting, for example, to an AI. I think that it's not just the AI at this point. It's not an independent organism that can create art. Um, and I think that's why it's so interesting what you're doing with bringing these very different perspectives together. Because I think somebody from a legal approach would say this is not true. Somebody from maybe an art approach would say this. And um, those spaces that you create at CSM with that, um, with also with that uh, discussion that you, you curated um, is very valuable. And I think it would be interesting for our audience to hear how was that planning process? Like how hard is it for you to reach out to people from very different spheres? Like, are you relying on your network or what's kind of your advice? Because I feel like we need more spaces like that so we can have, we can break out of this tunnel vision society that we're more and more engaged in. I don't know. I, it's, it's a lot of my network, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. And because, yeah, as I said, it's slightly easier for me because I I have, like, my LinkedIn is a mess. Like, I have people literally from art, from financial services, from consulting. And it's, it's you know, you can see where people are moving around. Um, it's actually network, but combined with serendipity. Mm. Uh, and it's talking a lot, a lot to people. I mean, one of the panelists, I actually... On that panel, there was supposed to be, uh, Ruth Cutler was supposed to go on that panel. And everyone was really excited for that. Uh, she's like one of the like key uh, figures in this whole art and blockchain space. Like, you know, talking about that since literally 2000, yeah, again, 14 even or something like that. Uh, but she got COVID. So I kind of like was short of like a gallerist. Uh, and um, I think I've arranged... Anka the night before because I was literally in a bar or in a pub with someone and and I spoke to a friend was like oh my god like I have one person dropping up because of COVID and, and she's like you know what like, I know a gallerist and do you want me to like DM her and you know we, we had a chat and it happened to be that Anka kind of also comes from Poland like me we connected uh, and and yeah and then she came to CSM another artist I'm wondering who is this guy that I said that he he's worked for blockchain since 2000 16 um i was again in a pub i don't know maybe all of my networking happens <laughs> in the pub uh but yeah i was in the pub and then i talked to i told my friends about this event and he said oh you should get simon denny and then i was like who is simon denny <laughs> and like i don't know like he's this is quite big artist in berlin and i literally dm the guy on instagram <laughs> yeah and uh and he pre-recorded for me like which 30 minutes footage uh that I could then talk around and use for the panel. So it's it's just, it's a lot of serendipity. So like just talking about my projects and my ideas to, to random people. And, and then they know some other people and then they introduce me to. Sometimes I cold message people. Like usually 
Yeah, I mean, twice now that I got someone on the panel after reading a Financial Times article. Mm-hmm. I was just reading an article, and in the article, someone mentioned an interview of mm-hmm. someone. Uh, I took a note of the name, and I just messaged a person. It's a hydrogen that comes to CSM. Uh, sometimes they don't reply, sometimes they reply. Usually they reply because I think uh, CSM is a great platform. It's also kind of great for me to, to say, like, you know, it, it's, it's really like a privilege for us to invite you to, it's just not to have a talk with me, but like actually to talk to our students mm. uh, at Central St. Martins. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's always a good excuse for people to come and see the campus because the building is amazing. So maybe the building helps a lot. <laughs> no, but I, I just really want to emphasize what you're saying is so important. And I hear that a lot in innovation and all all people starting out in the field and trying to get interesting people to connect with with the topics we care about is it's so important to just reach out like you never know what's going to happen and um a lot of i think a lot of innovation stories begin there and um the power of the internet and innovation in itself is that we get to connect and ask and ask and honestly like i think i share the same experiences like you do like you never know what's going to come out of it. And also people might say yes for so many different reasons. Like maybe it's the building, maybe it's CSM, maybe they're just in a good mood. Like it can be anything. And um, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. There is actually a scientific study. I think it's from Harvard about like how innovations are happening within an organization. And but they found that if you have strong ties in the company, so let's say you have five close friends, you are less likely to um, to push your idea mm-hmm. to an innovation comparing to someone who has a lot of weak ties in the company. Mm-hmm. So if someone just knows 200 people in the company, but not on a very kind of um, close level relationship, it's actually easier for this person. Because as you say, it's just this snowball effect mm-hmm. because they just speak to so many people and then all these weak ties suddenly become supporters mm. of these ideas and then this is how the idea is being pushed through within an organization through different levels it's not nepotism it's basically having a lot of people backing you mm. um maybe maybe yeah, maybe a bit like what's happening with Dallas right now so mm. um that's that's uh that's always yeah i mean we just had a talk last week I can drop you uh, with um, with the author of the book, uh, the Serendipity Mindset. He's from NYU. So it was a talk. I read. I read the book. NYU. That's great. Everybody read it. Chris is great. Yeah, yeah it, it's fantastic. And yeah, and he's he's trying to basically like scientifically just mm-hmm. trying to prove like just speak to random people and then something good will happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think I think it's a fantastic book that uh, that he wrote about it, and it is actually what happens from my whole career. No, I think I think it's also so surprising that people like to just be confronted with with a random idea, you know, like I think people sometimes are shy or scared to raise an interesting idea. But at the same time, that's maybe something that that other person was exactly waiting for. So it's it sounds so cliche, but like I can really just emphasize how um, it's just so important. A lot of my students are asking, like, you know, if you're sharing your idea, should you already, like, give people NDAs to sign? Mm. Because that, that's, that's kind of like, if you're a student, that, that's uh, one of the first questions. And, and what I'm always saying is that, like, you know, the idea is the least important thing. I mean, mm. people have ideas every, all the time. 
to just share it with the person. I, I really don't think that the chances of someone will go and steal your idea is it's quite low because yes, sure, he can steal it, but then can he can actually implement the idea? That's that's even more difficult. Mm. So yeah, I think just exactly as you say, just just share it with different people in pubs yeah honestly even in pubs uh, I can <laughs> say similar stories and I think it's interesting that um, what you said with innovation is actually the change and not just the idea it's not just the crazy idea it's actually how do we get that and that that takes a team and that takes people you will eventually have to disclose and NDAs are like kind of like I feel like a killer of innovation because like your idea yeah. needs input especially at the beginning so yeah there will be pivots in the journey as well. Mm. So the NDA will just cover part of it, but actually the end product will be completely different anyway. Exactly, exactly. And I think that kind of also leads me to a question I wanted to ask you, especially in line with our topics in the next weeks, is, you know, being a woman in innovation. And I think also in finance and um, all the fields that are so male-dominated, what is your advice for specifically women wanting to enter into in the innovation space or that are already inside of it and um, what's been your experience particularly on that front? I don't know if I should say something controversial because like, sometimes I do have random controversial thoughts. I do think it's easier mm. to be a woman nowadays. Mm. I think if you're a white male guy, not gonna get a job uh unfortunately it's just so unfair because i'm also involved in the recruitment space and it is really quite hard to hire a white guy nowadays because like you know everybody will be judging you it's so easier to get a woman uh, no it's so nice to get a woman quite difficult to get a woman i agree there is not um, enough supply in terms of you know in the cv pool you don't have we have like around 20 percent women who are applying for various jobs especially tech is even less um and it's it's a because you know women are not changing jobs that often mm. they're not really kind of uh that interested in uh looking around about you know pumping the salary changing stuff uh we kind of like stability so that we find a good place and we just stick there mm. um in terms of tech itself Yes, there is an issue on the market. There is an issue both in, fin in in finance and in tech. But I think that starts from the very, very early thing. And of course, I can say classical points like, oh, we don't have enough people studying computer science um, at university. I think it's around like 40% mm. are women. And then somehow after graduation, half of them just drop out. I don't know where they're going, but they suddenly disappear. And then it's just like around... 20% left on the market um, versus 80 uh, men. And um, it is some stigma with STEM, potentially. Uh, but I found recently a very more intriguing reason. So my friend is having a daughter and she's sending her to a private school in London. And at the age of four, you can already sign them up to after-class um, mm. activities. And in the girls' school, the activities that you have is ballet and God knows, like singing, dancing, yoga, things like that. And in the in the boys' school, you have uh, model of United Nations, investment club, coding. Like if you already are training kids from four and the girls have no options to join the investment club at the age of four, then no wonder they're not studying that later mm. at the university because mm. we have been preconditioned since like such a small age like this this kids can't even read and they already cannot mm. you know join the right activities 
to um, yeah to at least spark interest in that particular area. And I think again, like it's it's a lot of things happening in the childhood. I I went to that route is because I'm from an Asian family, and in an Asian family you have to study maths. Like there's no chance you're not doing that. Um, and I was preconditioned. It's just like for my parents, like, of course you're doing maths. Like you mm. go to Olympiads, like they just why not? Like you're Asian. And then that's why for me it was kind of normal. And then when I chose all my majors later, it was very like math specifics. Uh, and, and, and somehow I ended up in engineering. And yeah, it's it's kind of like my parents who never said that uh, you, you don't have to think about maths, like, you know, you're, you're a girl or something. It's just, it's, it's a lot of, yeah, uh, things that we're bringing, habits or like, you know, things that we are being accepted by our parents since we're kids. Uh, and then w- once we're on the job market, mm. yeah, I mean, um, my only controversial thing is that Nowadays, I think it's slightly easier to get a job as a woman in this um, companies. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it's because they do need to have better numbers because mm. they have to. They have on reports. They have to show their uh, directors, board of directors, that oh look, guys, we have thirty percent women. Mm. Um, but what happens is also that women are charging more because mm. it's less of women. So uh, what I noticed is that the salaries are sometimes actually higher than the male equivalent. Mm. For example, the C-suite level, for sure, mm. because it's it's so difficult to find one. Mm. Uh, they can literally charge like, you know, above 200K. And, uh, and it's great because, you know, once you're there, it's a great example to set for other people, kind of to show that it's doable. Mm. It's quite hard if you have a family, but mm. then, yeah, yeah. Again, I think that's like a whole discussion about like how society is preparing moms and supporting moms mm. uh, in in the work-life balance. I think COVID helped a lot. Like, mm. I don't really feel bad now to leave slightly early to go to the nursery, and then I don't really feel that bad that I'm emailing someone at eight thirty after my daughter goes to bed. Because mm. you know we're all used to getting the place laid out. Whereas before COVID, it was quite annoying for people to receive emails from me at late hours. Now we're more understanding for I think people with uh, with kids. So yeah, there is just mm. one silver lining. Yeah. After this two years, yeah, and I think it's interesting actually. I feel like that's also encouraging. Actually, I don't think it's very controversial. It's great to know that as a woman, you know, if you apply, you have good chances. Because I feel like maybe thirty years ago, you would have not been, you know, even if there was an interest in women, like women were seen as maybe you know less reliable. Um, you know, people would be like, oh, they're gonna, you know, become mothers anyways and leave. Like, you know, I feel like that's really changing now. So. It's very encouraging, um, but I feel like we need two more generations until we have, as you say, kids from the very beginning, you know, being taught that they can do math, they can do engineering if they want to. I don't know if I got into the space because my name is Asian. And then when I was applying my CVs, no one really know what is my gender. And that's also linked, right? Like now, thankfully, people are speaking about it. But yeah, a lot of misconceptions, a lot of just like, you know... Uh, I, I I'm not sure if that is changing as fast as the female as the female um kind of empowerment. Oh yeah, that's difficult as well. But it's it's because 
I don't want to be in a situation where now we were forced to, you know, hire for more, higher diversity because of some rules, mm. because that's actually then, as, as I said, like unfair towards the majority. But yeah, I think, and I'm also against kind of removing names or any identifiable data from CVs because, yeah, I mean, I had this conversation with someone who was like, let's delete all the schools. I'm like, yes, but what if someone worked really hard in their lives, like really, really hard to get into Oxford, you know, when, when, when the rest was partying and, you know, they were like in the library at the age of 12, like, I don't know, reading all these books, it's like, I'll get to Oxford. And then now we're deleting that from their CV. It's kind of like, yeah. it's not a bad thing that someone studied in their teenage age, right? So mm. like, we should cherish that, put that in the CV and then apply. And yeah, it's, it's, and then with the, uh, with the name, I understand that. Yeah. I don't know. May, maybe the name should be anonymized. Maybe not. Um, but I would really like to run some like proper tests, mm. like how, how, but yeah, I mean, the gender can be still identified by school, but there's no point of removing the names because you can see the boys and girls schools easily like that, mm. especially in UK. Someone mm. went to that school. It means that they're boys. So yeah, mm. I think in terms of uh, but the maternity case, it, it's very it's very um, valid what you mentioned. I mean, as an employer, like when I'm on the other side, like sometimes I'm asking that question myself. Like you know, what if we a female employee and then what if she goes on maternity and you know I had to retrain a new person uh, and then so I think that's that's something that would be well welcomed if. It's being supported by the government, like in a proper way. Mm. So longer maternities. I mean, my maternity was three months only. Uh, and I kind of didn't see myself going back to nine to five uh, job. And I think that's why I, I kind of stayed in academia because it was just more flexible. Yeah. And you also wrote a lot about um, just also remote working and and the COVID and how it had um like the time article how it had an impact which mm -hmm. i also have included in the in the podcast links and um in general would you then say that you know COVID kind of gave that flexibility to mothers across all fields like not just academia or do you think there's still um kind of now that we're coming back to normality you can see people being less uh, advantaged again now that we're back to normal no i think in general people are more understanding. Mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, because we still have the hybrid mode now, what happens after COVID. So I mm. think yeah. for moms especially, it's quite also easier now to arrange everything. We know that we don't have to be five days mm -mm -mm. in the office. And it kind of helps not only not only moms, like anyone else to just not be able to, not be forced to commute that part. So I think the hybrid so far, it's an interesting concept that I'm, I'm just observing quite cautiously and then mm -hmm. seeing like what are the results of that. I personally, of course, miss uh, physical meetings so much. Mm. And um, that, that's why this, this kind of article discovery came out from one of the studies actually that I spoke to like 46 people uh, from during the lockdown. And, you know, it was like a tragedy. Like no one could actually like, and some of them were architects. Like we can't even sketch together. It's just like the disaster. We're sketching on PowerPoint slides. Mm. And, um, you know, like, yes, we are faster online. And I'm just like a bit sick of talking to some executive. We're like, yes, but the efficiency is so great. We're performing, but like, 
it's great if you're just ticking off stuff, mm. like sending 20 emails. It's better, of course, than going to the office and sending 20 emails. You're saving time. Yes, great. You're performing better. Mm. But to be creative in the team, it's impossible because mm. it's a lot of other things that are not just exchanging uh, text, voice, mm. um, or message through Zoom that is important, but it's also about building trust so that you can share fully ideas with each other, uh, building trust so that you can negotiate, build on top of each other points. And these are the, the things that are happening, unfortunately, in real life mm. uh, through your body language or just, you know, through tonation of your voice. And especially for a lot of conversations that are happening outside the meetings, mm. you know, on the way to the meeting room mm. and stuff. So, mm. um so the whole article got quite, it got quite a backlash from people who just don't like to go to work. Mm. Um, and they prefer to, you know, sit at home, uh, not commute, work like less hours. But I think the whole point of the article is that it does, uh, remote working does work for some types of work, especially mm. if you don't have to deal with other people. Mm. But if you're in a creative environment and then you work in teams, uh, it is always nicer to to meet up, and I, I whenever I'm at the university meeting up people, something happens. It's just the thing that going back to what we spoke about, the serendipity happened. Mm. We just like throw in randomly something that normally wouldn't happen on a Zoom call. Mm. Uh, you know, a small comment. You know, even the fact that you know someone gave me this panelist in the pub. It was like we had a session together. We talked in class, and then after the class. Someone said, hey, let's, let's just go to the bar at CSM. And, and we just like popped by for a drink and the whole conversation about the panel came up. If I would meet, if I would teach online that class that day, we wouldn't go to the bar, we wouldn't talk about the panel and I wouldn't get the panelist. Uh, so yeah, so I think let's test the hybrid working and then try to yeah, at least meet other people, have like this uh, creative meetings uh, in person in the office and uh, also appreciate the days without people at mm. home, maybe, when we can have... I really like this idea I think Apple has, that, like, no meetings, uh, no calls, mm. no Zoom calls day, mm -hmm. when you can actually do, finish your stuff, mm. uh, out of something like that. I think it's, it's a great idea. So also, you know, have your, have your headspace mm. um, to deal with your own business, and I think... We need a balance here. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting how you spoke about the collective workspaces, especially for creatives. Like, especially London has a lot of opportunities. If you're a creative and your your job is not offering you the space, you can go ahead and work with other creatives. But I think if you live in a village or if you live far away from a city, like the isolation of creatives is just, it's very sad to see. I think a lot of, as you say, ideas are lost because they're, there's no point of encountering each other. So um, I hope that that will change again and that we will have more uh, conversations like this in real life. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you so much for your time. I think we have come to almost an hour, so we will leave our audience at this point. Um, thank you for joining me today. It was very interesting to speak to you. I hope that uh, our audience feels inspired and has some uh, interesting links attached to this episode so you guys can check it out um, and read more about everything we spoke about. Um, thank you so much, Mimi. Thank you for having me.
Thank you so much for tuning in to episode five of the Power of the Crowd podcast today. We hope you found our conversation with Mimi inspiring and insightful. Make sure to tag the Power of the Crowd and follow us on Instagram at Global Crowd to share your thoughts on today's conversation. Thank you and see you next time.